Greetings, friends. Welcome to another session of the Crypto Corner brought to you by Navic. I am your host, Alex Takei. And today we'll be chatting all things UGC gaming with Uri Marchand, the CEO of Overwolf. Overwolf, for those who don't know, operates the world's largest mod repository, CurseForge, empowering creators who want to create a profession or a side gig or even just a general hobby out of modding games. From how I understand it, Overwolf supports app development for over 800 PC games, including some of the biggest free-to-play heavy hitters like League, Dota, PUBG, Fortnite, and Hearthstone. Um, last I checked, Overwolf had something like 30 million users and a hot streak of funding from backers like A16Z and Inside Venture Partners and Griffin. Um, but welcome to the Metacast, Uri. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here. Um, first, I think Overwolf is just a sick name. Um, so, and I love the logo. Um, <laughs> I you. I think it's just a great great branding and very, very powerful branding, I guess. Um, and, you know, I'm a gaming enthusiast. I think modding has been a tremendous force into pushing games to where they are. We all know the stories of how League and became to be uh, mm. and all the Half-Life mods, etc. But um, I definitely have gone onto like Nexus mods to try to make like my console inventory system in Witcher 3 like a lot better um, mm-hmm. or found some sort of like Final Fantasy 15 cosmetic mods. Right. So... Uh, yeah, and then um, just in case for our, uh, in our audience, if you don't know um, what mods are, mods are typically the modification of either hardware or software. In the gaming industry, it is typically meant to basically take the foundation of maybe a AAA or indie product and create a kind of new framework around it, whether that's aesthetics or new game modes, etc. So, yeah. Um, and then one more thing I'm super, super interested to ask you about um, your perspectives on blockchain since a lot mm-hmm. of the creator economy uh, panegyrics believe that you can't build the creator economy without blockchain. And I always kind of shrug and say, well, what about Overwolf? They're kind of doing it without blockchain. So I would love to hear right. your thoughts. But before we go down that pipe, mm-hmm. you know, maybe share a little bit about yourself um, and what Overwolf is in your own words. Um, great. So um, starting with myself real quick, um, I started playing games at a very young age, so probably six. When I think about it, it's actually not so young compared to when people start to play these days. Uh, but, but when I started playing, um, it's kind of when the PC era had started. So um, I'm like a 1980 um, generation. So um, played games pretty much all my life, uh, spent a few years in the army, started computer science, and then started Overwolf. When we started the company, we wanted to do something a little bit different compared to what we do today. When we started the company, we actually started as creators and we were trying to add features to the games that we were playing. One of the apps we used for communication back then playing online games like StarCraft, World of Warcraft um, was uh, Skype. So um, obviously there was Ventrilo and then TeamSpeak, um, but we used Skype for whatever reason and we felt like the experience was broken because we needed to tab out for communication or chat back in that didn't work so well back then and we thought that we're going to build a nice company through solving our own pains through solving gamer pains um mid 2013 we pivoted to build a framework and this brought us to where we are today so today uh overwolf is basically empowering both creators and game developers to make games even better or to make their games even better and we do this through providing tools and services for third-party creators. So exactly the things that we've built back in the day that we had to go through 
a bunch of trial and error and we had a lot of R&D kind of um, riddles that we had to figure out how to eventually solve. So we thought that it's actually going to be a, a great idea and a better manifestation of our vision to empower third-party creators not to try and build everything in-house ourselves. Because at the end of the day, mm. it's really, really hard to find like a generic use case across many games that everyone's going to want to use. A lot of mm. content is very much game-specific. And I don't believe that there is a single company that can just you know build all mods or all apps or all mm -hmm. private servers. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so we decided to focus on building tools. Right now, we work with uh, something like 98,000 creators every month across all our products. We serve 33 million monthly active players. And um, yeah, I mean, this is what we're doing. So I, another way to think about what we do is if Unity is an engine to build games or Unreal is an engine to build games, we're like an engine and a service to build a creator community around your game. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And so it sounds like you're kind of uh, facilitating this new era of modders and creators becoming more like developers in that sense. Um, and so it's kind of, and, and I think that's true across the games industry. There's this sort of trend that a lot of games are building in UGC tools with their launches. Um, right. And so it sounds for Overwolf that you, you began that way, right? It's in your DNA. You started building and modding games and using Skype, et cetera. Um, but can you kind of explain why you think UGC is moving in this direction and how this is the future of I think some um, in a in a forum or kind of a a big kind of a industry conference you had mentioned that UGC is the three of games. Right. Kind of explain more about that concept. Um, sure. So I think going back to twenty fourteen, um, we um, published this article in GamesIndustry.biz, and it was like a. Um, thought leadership piece that sometimes startups do with uh, PR companies and all those things, but it was really meant to share with the world our perspective of how the future of gaming is going to kind of evolve and why it makes sense to embrace third-party creators around games in a safe and secure way versus to deny them for whatever reason. Mm. Um, so this, you're, you're absolutely spot on in the fact that this has been how we started. Uh, we started as creators, and then we understood that we would better serve our goal in building tools for creators. I think that what's changed is if we look at the last four decades from probably 1983 until today, we can kind of divide those four decades into eras. In the beginning, it was mostly people like hacking and reverse engineering the games and trying to find ways to enhance them. Because not too many people played games back then, and those that did had computers, and they were likely potentially engineers because they had computers back in, I don't know, 1986 or something. So they liked to kind of play around with software and build stuff. So they ended up modding these games. And then there was an adoption of things like map editors, right? Uh, for Warcraft, for example, mm -hmm. which eventually resulted in creating all sorts of new experiences. Um, the gap was between Gen 1 to Gen 2 is... Gen 1 is basically built yourself, uh, reverse engineer the game, try and figure out how things work and build something. Gen 2 is actually the game developer providing me some sort of a map editor or some sort of a creation kit. You know, Skyrim has that, for example, so that I can build 
Um, just like the studio can build content in-house, I can, as a third-party creator, build content in the world of the game. And now I think we're at a point in which not only studios are investing in creation kits, they're also investing in nurturing the community and finding a business model that makes sense so that the whole thing would become sustainable. Um, things that happened in the past decade that have accelerated the acceptance of UGC, I think, first and foremost, Minecraft. Such mm. a huge ecosystem in both Java and Bedrock. And so many developers that have created their own private servers or mods and are now making a living building, you know, live service games on top of Minecraft. And they're actually thinking about Minecraft as if it was like a game engine. Just, you know, it's Minecraft and, you know, it has its limitations in terms of IP and in terms of ownership and all those things. But it has massive adoption. Like If you think about that, if you're a young game developer right now and you want to build a new game, Mm-hmm. going to market is going to be quite challenging. And if you can build a game for an existing audience like a private server for Minecraft, I think um, there are advantages and disadvantages to both, but I think there are definitely advantages to be considered if you're building for Minecraft. And so I think this is one um, trend, obviously. Uh, the other one is uh, Roblox. Um, so I kind of felt like ever since uh, Roblox IPO'd, investors and people who are more kind of... in not necessarily game developers that are like in the weeds of you know the code and all the details and all that. People who are um, more looking at you know trends and trying to figure out what's going to be tomorrow. They they start really understanding what it is that we do because we're really helping a lot of studios provide semi Roblox like functionality on top mm. of their game without re- really working hard and building such an amazing you know ecosystem like Roblox over almost uh, two decades. Um, and so I think, you know, in, if we look at what helped make UGC as important as it is today, then I think it's a combination of A, four decades of just p- people building content, B, the deep understanding from a lot of game developers that it's actually really, really good to have third-party creators building content for your game, as long as it's safe and curated and there's a way to just make sure, sure. that it doesn't hurt uh, people or your community and it's not toxic, you know, all those things are really, really important. Uh, so I think there's a deep understanding from like the IP owners that this is actually valuable if done right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a bunch of examples. So we talked about Minecraft. We talked about Roblox. There's obviously GTA 5 and 5M and, and, and all that. And there are other examples like Skyrim. Um, so I think there, there are so many reasons why this becomes important. Um, and this is kind of what got us where we are today. When I talked about game three, it's like, uh, so, you know, web one, web two, web three, right? Web one, read, web two, read, write, web three, read, write, own, uh, mm-hmm. game one, game two, game three. Game one is really like single player games. And then game two is online, right? All of a sudden I can play with friends. That's like a whole different thing. Um, and game three is the transition from playing with my friends to actually creating content for myself and for my friends as we play together and potentially making a living. I think this is the essence of why we think this is such a material part of the evolution of games. I think it's as important as online gaming. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so in this, in this web three, sorry, not web three, game three. Oh my goodness. It's such a buzzword. Um, What do you think are the tools that actually make a strong UGC ecosystem? Um, you know, for example, I, I've built a Roblox game before, um, and mm-hmm. the scripting language is Lua, right? But there's obviously like a lot of in-tool 3D assets that I can pull off the shelf. If I'm trying to build a mod for Dota, um, you know, 
where do I start? What tools that does Overwolf have specifically that makes that an easier journey for me? Um, mm -hmm. Kind of walk me through the process of how I would go about building a mod in Overwolf. So, so I think the you're right in the sense that um, it starts with the it starts with the tools that uh, creators get if they want to build content. Um, because we deal with a bunch of UGC, I'll kind of divide it into categories, uh, which are apps like overlay stuff, not really mm -hmm. changing gameplay but adding functionality. I'll talk about mods and I'll talk about private servers. The on the app side, what we provide is a framework for third-party developers to build desktop apps using HTML and JavaScript. So you don't have to know like C++ or more lower-level languages to build meaningful experiences. Mm. And apart from allowing the development of these apps in HTML and JavaScript, we constantly develop more and more JavaScript APIs that do more complicated things like understanding real-time telemetry, like what's happening on the screen. Um, so we, we talked earlier, you mentioned that you like playing online card games. So for example, if I'm playing uh, Magic the Gathering, if I if I want to have like a deck tracker, I need to understand which cards yes. are now on, yep. on the table. <laughs> um, or if I'm playing League, um, I may want to know something like um, when I died, if I want to kind of capture a clip of that and debrief. So there's real-time telemetry. There's... Obviously, overlay, which is kind of hard in the PC world, is coexistence with a bunch of antiviruses and everything else that happens on your PC. And there's like a list of um, maybe over 100 items that are simple problems that we have solved for these uh, third-party app developers, including monetization. So hmm. being able to monetize, putting an ad slot or doing subscriptions is also something that we provide for these uh, third-party developers. So I would say that on the apps front, uh, we provide basically... Uh, an A to Z solution all the way up to the relationship with the game developer to make sure whatever you're building is something that they like for you, the creator. This is the first category. The second category, modders. This is where it becomes uh, a bit more complicated because I think a mod eventually starts with a creation kit. Mm. And if the game developer had created a great creation kit, then we would help with uh, publishing, with moderating, with helping to monetize it. Imagine you just created a map for yourself, right? And now you want to share it with your friends. You know, not a lot of games have that ability embedded in them. And it creates a lot of complexities from a safety perspective. Um, let's say you're a super popular map creator and everyone just loves your map. And every time you release a new map, you have like $100,000 of the new map over 24 hours. Um, what if someone hacks your computer and then instead of uploading a map, they upload a virus and they find their way into people's computer. That has to be a good mm -hmm. moderation and curation and safety process to make sure that the content that's then being distributed and potentially auto-updated is safe. And in the UGC world, <laughs> it's kind of complicated when you manage like 98,000 creators. You have to figure out how to do yeah. it and how to have technical tools that would prevent you know all those bad things from happening. So I think on this front, it's not necessarily the creation kit that is provided oftentimes by the game developer. It's all the operations around all of the live ops around managing a creator community. Got it. Got right? it. So this is the third category. Um, private servers over there, it's more like Shopify. So the, the, yeah, I guess my, that was my question, right? So you have all these three, these three buckets, right? You have um, yeah. the apps, which are potential overlays, feature enhancement, something that would help me manage my inventory system. I'm definitely a prolific user of the deck trackers for yep. sure. Um, uh, mods themselves, and then um, the private servers. And so did Overwolf 
build all these things themselves over the past um, 10 years? Or were there acquisitions or partnerships that you pursue to actually build out all these tools? Just sort of trying to understand sort of like where is the bread and butter for Overwolf and what is done maybe through acquisition or M&A, et cetera. Sure. So we um, started with apps and, you know, back when we started, this was the core focus. Um, We wanted to expand into mods um, probably like in 2014 is when we started exploring all sorts of ideas on how to expand, how to expand into mods. And this is where I have done this article that I mentioned and, and sent over to you. Um, but at that point, we still haven't written code. It was mostly, we have a bunch of ideas. This is something that we want to get to, but we're not 100% mm. sure when. And then we started working on modding something like... Um, um, it was before the curse for acquisition. I don't remember how much time, um, but this is when we started working on it in the company. So we hired like a GM for our like modding category, and uh, we started building things. and And then we came across the opportunity to acquire CurseForge uh, from Twitch, and we thought that it, it was it's it's like it's a great product that we were, have used ourselves with such large communities for World of Warcraft and Minecraft. And so we end up deciding to make this acquisition. Um, it was only an asset acquisition. So actually the team that worked on it uh, stayed at Twitch. And so we kind of, we were able to take it and sort of merge it with some of the things that we've done and kind of relaunch it. Um, I don't know, maybe six months later or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, our entry into the private service space was through the acquisition of this company called Tebex uh, that has done pretty much something like a Shopify that is dedicated for private server owners over the past decade. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think I remember um, listening to a podcast about your acquisition maybe back in April, uh, which I thought was uh, you know pretty interesting. I think the there are so many game studios that you know, enable private servers, but it's a a ton of work. Um, So it's actually great to have this sort of outside service in the case that, you know, your game does end up being successful and people, the demand for private servers is there. I think a lot of game studios struggle with the, is my game going to be popular enough such that it will have a creator community around it, but we don't know that yet and we have limited resources, so we don't know what to invest in. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of uh, to a huge point of sort of like why, Overwolf exists. Yeah, I mean, it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Um, and because you, you're not harmed and sure what's going to bring your game to success. Um, and I can give you an example. <clears throat> We're now speaking with this uh, indie game studio that is about to launch a game with a decentralized mm-hmm. server architecture. So, you know, day zero support for private servers, and they have a very kind of fancy creation kit so that you can really do some really cool things with their uh, tools. And you know nobody knows if the game's going to be a big hit or if it's going to, you know, not get any attention. So what we do when we see a studio that's so passionate about uh, UGC, then we uh, work with them for a couple months before launch, and we would potentially reach out to an existing community of creators, and we would say, hey, you know, there's this new uh, game coming mm. up under NDA. Um, how about building a private server for it, and, and maybe we can even fund it for you if you need, you know, um, an ability to pay mm. the bills. So. So let's say you have a private server for game A, and all of a sudden we, we reach out to you and say, hey, Alex, we really like you and the work you've done with game A. Um, there's an opportunity with game B. I don't know if you want to do it. Uh, but if you do, here's the help and support we can give you. 
And by the way, you'd be kind of, uh, you know, one of a dozen servers that are going to be available day zero. Um, and then once you launch, you actually improve the app, the uh, odds of success because you have a bunch of really, really cool servers that people can spend, spend time in, you know, playing your game that could be like a pay-to-play game, like a you know, $30 game or whatever. So this is, you know, this is one of the things that we work to solve that chicken and egg problem of having developers who are not yet 100% sure that the game is going to be successful. They really want to focus on gameplay and launch. They can't really think right now about having a creator community. You know, so here's Overwolf, here's Eternal, which is like the the product that we have for that. Um, and, you know, together we can potentially make your game really successful. Wow. Okay, interesting. So you don't only choose to partner with um, games that are already large because there is a substantial creator community already surrounding it. Um, you know, I want to talk about um, sort of what you view the role of established IP is in the UGC community. But you also mm-hmm. partner with studios at the very, very beginning when yep. they aren't even sure whether or not their game would be a, a hit or have sort of some sort of creator virality around it um, to help them build that from from ground zero. Is that right. correct? Yep, to help them building from ground zero. In that sense, we're kind of like an investor or like a publisher that participates mm. in taking some of the risk, uh, right, of launching the game. And, you know, maybe it's going to work, maybe it's not going to work. Um, and we're counting on the um, kind of the addition of the UGC element as a contributing factor to the game's success. You know, it doesn't mean that we'll invest in every game. Obviously, we'd like to sure. meet the team and um, play the game ourselves and understand like what depth the tools that are provided for third creators have, and you know all those things. But if you know a team checks all the boxes, then you know this is where I, um, we're here for. You mentioned that we've done a bunch of funding rounds. Um, that was the thesis behind them, you know, to be able mm. to make uh, investments in growing the category, proving how relevant it is, and, um, you know, making a bunch of uh, game developers happy along the way. Wow, cool. And so then, you know, you're you're basically nurturing new IP, and you're also harboring older IP um, that already has creator communities around it, Right. And I think that that's actually something that's pretty different maybe about Overwolf than maybe a Roblox or a Minecraft because you guys are actually um, kind of already hosting something. You're pulling mm-hmm. in a bunch of different IPs from AAA studios, indie studios all over the world. And so to me, that's very interesting because it's so different than maybe like the self-created quote metaverse of like maybe like a horizon, right? Where they're like what Meta is doing, where it's everything is sort of, um, you know, self, self-created self by the studio itself. Yep. Sort of how can, how do you view the actual role of IP? And, you know, maybe you can speak a little bit about the recent Sims partnership. Um, yep. And how do you decide, you know, which games ought to get added, for example, to like the CurseForge pipeline or, you know, like you just mentioned that you want to meet the team for the studios that haven't launched, but maybe on the mm-hmm. live game side, how do you pick which ones get allowed are allowed to be supported? Um, so I think in terms of allowed to be supported, we're comfortable with uh, pretty much every game to be supported as long as the studio is happy with UGC and they're not concerned about what people create and you know they see the value, then we're happy for the game to be added to CurseForge and people starting to upload content. Um, mm. in that sense, it's going to be relatively hands-free on our end. We would just make sure it's safe with our automation tools and manual curation and moderation. But 
as long as it's you know consistent with the IP owner and how they see the world, no worries. Um, where we get um, more involved and you know put in more resources and more development work and all those things is indeed when we have either a new game that you know needs a lot a lot of uh, love, tender, and care to kickstart a new creator community or an existing creator community, and uh, you know both instances are really challenging in how you approach them and how you work with the creators over there. Um, but I think, I mean, it comes down to um, the IP owner and their culture. Like if they're, mm. if we believe there's alignment, there's like culture alignment in, in kind of embracing creativity and we understand that they're in it for the long run. And we know that even though, um, there are going to be challenges because we're aligned culturally and because we're in it for the long run, we'll kind of solve these problems, if you know what I mean. So I think, you know, this would be an ideal partner for us. Um, an opportunistic, opportunistic partner that might, might tell us something like, yeah, you know, there's this UGC idea. Um, yeah, we're, we're not quite excited about that. We're willing to give you guys the go ahead to, you know, check it out and good luck, you know, that I don't love. So there has to be like mm. a really, 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 really good reason for us to uh, work this way. Because like any journey, there are obstacles. And if there isn't a cultural alignment, then uh, obstacles are going to be a lot harder to cross. Sure, sure. And then, so I guess we can talk about the recent, most recent partnership with, sure. with Sims and EA. Um, how did that kind of come together, right? I think it sounds so, to me, so intuitive, right? Because there's been mm -hmm. such a robust modding community around the Sims. But yep. what got you guys excited about that partnership? How did it, um, what was the impetus or how did it come to inception, right? Was it, you know, you guys approaching them, them approaching you? Um, maybe share more about that, uh, that journey. Sure. So, um I think it starts off with uh, them building a great game and the community kind of rallying around the game and building products um, that help players create, that um, help players discover, and that allow influencers to like really build high-quality content and massive following on the different networks uh, for the game. Mm. So I think this is where it starts. And then for them, you know, internally they have taken the approach of uh, like always watching what's happening in the modding space, um, caring about it, having internal conversations about it, um, you know, long before we even talked with them. Um, and then we got introduced through an industry friend uh, to one of the heads of the studio of Maxis. And it was basically an introduction call say, Hey, you know, love your work on the Sims over the past few years. Um, want to share what we do and what value we can potentially bring to the table. Um, and, and this is how it started. Um, so, you know, we worked together and eventually we had this announcement and today the website went live and uh, the client is going to come live in a couple of weeks. And, you know, for, I think from that point moving forward, it's going to be just a journey of constant iterations and improvements to the quality service we provide both for creators, but also for the gamers themselves. Got it. Got it. And so this this seems like it's something that's happening quite soon. So let's just say I'm I've been making mods for The Sims for the past four or five years. Um, as a creator, what should I start getting excited about now that this Overwolf partnership with The Sims has been sort of 
signed and decreed, right? Um, mm-hmm. What kind of, can you share maybe about some of the economics that I could be excited about or the tools that I could be excited about now that this is kind of like officially sanctioned? Sure. Um, I, th- I guess first off, you know, you uh, go to the landing page and you kind of read and learn where we're going and what's the feature set and like all those things. And then technically you probably want to sign up to CurseForge um, and start uploading your content, choose the right license you want for your content. And then start um, earning through our rewards program. Um, so rewards program is basically allowing you to get your relative share of the monetizable engagement. It's kind of like Spotify, if you think about it. You know, people listen to mm-hmm. music and then it rewards artists based on engagement. It's very similar the way it works uh, right now on uh, CurseForge. Um, I think that the second part is um, quality of life improvements. Uh, so if you're like a modder or if you're, a YouTube, if you're a YouTuber and you like using mods and you, you want to update them, it's kind of really hard right now to remember mm. which uh, like Tumblr did you download these mods from or Patreon or websites and marketplaces and then updating them. It's kind of difficult. Uh, so I think your quality of life is going to improve. I think because of that, more people will end up using mods uh, because, you know, it kind of becomes easy, like, it's a feature inside the game. You don't really need to work for the mods. They actually work for you. Uh, so I think you ha- you're going to have a greater audience. And if you have a greater audience, you're going to be able to get more following, get more YouTube payouts if you're a YouTuber. And then it's like, you know, something like a cycle that feeds itself. Right, right. Interesting. And then in that regard, so it sounds like the creator is basically benefiting from, I guess, um, Playthrough popularity of their mods specifically, I guess, I assume the way that it would sort of work was like, I make a mod for The Sims and somebody downloads it and that sort of contributes somehow to some sort of yeah. monetary gain that I would experience, right? Exactly. Uh, so it's it. installs and usage uh, and some sort of a secret algorithm uh, that we don't want to share with the world so that people are <laughs> getting it. Um, but I can definitely tell you that if you, if you have like one download for your content, it probably means that just people... Maybe, you know, maybe a couple downloads, maybe a couple dozen downloads. Uh, it probably means that maybe you and your friends are downloading it, but um, perhaps the quality is not there. Because like, if we see something that a lot of people use and, you know, good retention, we'll feature it and we'll promote it so that more people mm. are going to use your mods. You know what I mean? And so if, um, I mean, you're not going to be able to make a living, obviously, if you have a couple dozen downloads, but, you know, some folks have uh, millions. And so and this is a scale that does allow you to earn. And so I guess in that regard, on average, if I'm a creator in Overwolf, and let's just say I'm a successful creator at Overwolf, how much could I expect to be making, right? And is that in a parity with maybe another metaverse world generation like Roblox or um, um, sure. let's know, talk Minecraft? Um, so, I mean, it's it's very much like an 80-20 or a 99-1 type, you know, ratio. Mm. Sure. Um, because a lot of people just like to create. So if, if I've talked about 98,000 a month that interact with our creation tools um we're talking about 1200 um unique creators that make over 10,000 a year um so this is one of the thresholds that we keep an eye on like 10,000 mm. a year because we think it's uh not insignificant even in you know developed countries like the US or um other western countries um and so we think that it's a good threshold for us to keep an eye on so you know about 1% would be making you know over 10k a year 
Um, mm. We have, uh, I believe the last number I checked over at GameSpeed was 99 creators who over their lifetime made over a million dollars. Oh, wow. Which I think starts to be comparable with some of the other ecosystems out there. Oh, and in the past 12 months, we've helped creators generate overall over $160 million overall. So obviously some creators are big, some are small, but this is like the sure, number. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, it sounds like your your player base is just following the, the standard Pareto rule, right? Where, you know, um, yeah. um, you know, I mean, you have a small yeah, I think Pareto is an 80-20, right? Um, yeah, 80-20. Yep. yep. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's it's more like a 99-1, but, but you're right in the sense that, you know, so the the folks who are able, but I think it's like YouTube, you know, I, I think also on YouTube, you know, there, there's so many creators, um, but they're they're not a ton, you know, that gets, that, that get massive mm. following. Sure. Sure. And I, I, this is maybe like a little bit tangential, but why do you think that modding particularly is such a like powerful framework for, for creativity? Right. Um, I remember, um, I'm, I'm half Japanese. And so I remember studying mm-hmm. some Japanese art and cinema and there's this concept called um, ikebana, and it's basically that means like in formality, there's freedom. And yep. I think it's just because it's not because modding is not like free flowing, right? You start with something. And so perhaps kind of share, at least from maybe your experiences or experiences that you've talked to with maybe your own creator community about why people love to mod specifically. Sure. I mean, I, modding is almost free of constraints uh, as long as you build something safe and non-toxic and you know um then you know it it might be really cool um and obviously because you're spending a lot of time building you're not going to waste your time building something that you don't believe in so it also it's combined with a lot of belief from the builder side um Mm. let's assume you know we have a modder let's call him john and john works at um this huge gaming company you know public gaming company where they have franchises that uh, and they have Wall Street looking at their numbers, and they need to deliver. Um, John, in this case, for him to develop the sequel of whatever franchise he's working on, he'd be uh, quite reluctant, I think, to take a huge risk that is potentially going to jeopardize the success of the company. Um, however, when he's at home or building with friends, I think the risk appetite is uh, greater, and I think the freedom is almost absolute again as long as safety is involved um and if he has a good idea that he wants to you know write on this is this is how the world kind of needs to behave in its purest way unfortunately you know reality is that we we got to work to make a living and we need to work on all these companies and sometimes companies are big and they have policies which are uh, there for good reasons so you understand what i'm saying i think just it's it's a it's a freer environment for self-expression that is almost um with no constraints, no mm. kind of real life constraints. Mm-hmm. And then I guess speaking to John, let's just say John works at a AAA studio and this studio is called Epic or Blizzard, right? And Epic has Fortnite creative and Blizzard for Overwatch at least has um, Workshop, right? How would you convince John that he should use Overwolf to create his mods or his new different types of um, in-game modes or you know whatever kind of creativity comes to him versus the internal tools that are already presented in a lot of those large AAA free-to-play games? Mm-hmm. So, so I think you know um, if you're if you love League, right? For example, League of Legends, um, 
it, it's quite likely that this is the game that you want to create for. Um, so, so I think uh, creators are gamers first and foremost, and they would want to create content for the game that they love playing, that they're mm-hmm. that they feel like they're they belong to. And if the game you feel like you belong to is is Fortnite, then we cannot be helpful for you. You know, go for it and um, use Epic's tools and build in Fortnite Creative, and you can be extremely successful. Um, so I think first and foremost, um, that we we provide tools for some games that nobody else does. And so if you're a gamer of these games, that's the first reason why you want to work with us. The second reason why I think you may want to work with us is that we're um, I think we're maybe the the only company in the world that is committed to continuously serving this community of in-game creators, one, mm. that has a track record of doing that and even doing that commercially. You know, as I mentioned, in the past 12 months, we've provided over $160 million to third-party creators. So we're not just pitching an idea. We actually have delivered and um, we've, we've been creators ourselves. Um, so I think track record is probably... Um, track record focus, you know, is probably the second reason. The third reason is just, I think, uh, cultural, like the way we built the organization and all our core values are about serving creators. And, you know, this is what we do. Um, and this is what we intend to be the best in the world at, uh, moving forward. And I think in a lot of ways, this is our advantage because we can focus on creator tools and, and this is it. Like our strategy is so simple. We build tools and services for creators. This is it. If it's right. not a tool or a service, then, you know, it's not us. So we're not interested. I see. And so has there ever been any, I guess, maybe friction working with those bigger AAA companies and securing those partnerships? Um, you know, I guess maybe this is a, maybe a remedial way of thinking. But, you know, when I was working on Overwatch, we spent a lot of time analyzing and hypothesizing how to grow player hours. You know, maybe yeah. a partnering with Overwolf would take players out of the ecosystem for Blizzard and put them in your ecosystem. Um, does that, is that the right way to think about it? Has there been any friction there? Um, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, nobody owns players. Like I know a lot of companies think they do, but I don't think this <laughs> is the case. Um, I think good games are, are own players. Um, it's actually, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, a player would buy a game, right? So if we talk about an ownership, like, or maybe if the game's free to play, but um but then just the quality of the experience is what keeps me playing. Um, and, you know, the world around us is extremely noisy. Um, and if there's a new game that launches, I probably heard about it. Um, and like Overwolf, like we're not like migrating players between games. I, I think the right way to think about this is more like how, how Riot Games thought about their kind of API and creator ecosystem, which is, our way to improve player satisfaction, help with mm. onboarding for a game that's really, really hardcore and you really like need to be on top of your stats and items and, and comps if it's like TFT or whatever. Um, and, you know, let's be open about it. Let's allow the community to come up with this content because it's going to be really, really hard for us to develop it all in-house. And, you know, uh, I like to run and I, and I swim too. And I think my retention doing these parts is higher because of my Garmin. And I, I think, you know, in a lot of mm. ways, games that provide interesting ways to, for example, track stats, even stats and achievements get better retention. And you don't need to do everything in house as long as it's uh, safe. Um, and, you know, for uh, a AAA, we want to be that safe partner. So to give an example, the way we work with Riot Games 
is uh, we would have like monthly or quarterly calls with their ecosystem team. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, it was more frequent. Uh, right now, I think we're we've we've been working together for so long, so we already know how they think and uh, what they what type of content they like and what type of content they don't like. And we actually act as like a sheriff and a moderator for them, so that when mm. players submit app ideas to us, that we say, all right, this is something that Riot's going to like. Then sure, that's that's great. If we have a dilemma, we'll reach out to Riot and ask them. Um, but if the answer is no, then the app is out. Like. We're very, very strict on <laughs> um, making sure all the IP owners are extremely happy with everything built on Overwolf. So, you know, we're providing an opportunity oh. to do this in a safe way, you know? So if you're brainstorming about ideas to increase player engagement, why not allow the community to build tools that increase player engagement and work with a partner that helps you do it in a safe way? Because I understand the concern of just releasing developer tools and having like a jungle out there with no ability to control. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are services like us, like, you know, potentially data-related services uh, that help you control. Got it, got it. And so this is the perfect segue, I would say. You've said a couple words. You've said centralization, um, and you've said creator economy, and a lot of these um, are ethoses of the other 3.0, not Game Mm -hmm. 3.0, but Web 3.0. And so given the nature of this podcast, I kind of have to talk to you about that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like, a core cultural and value creative overwolf is con- sort of consolidating and moderating that wild, wild west, right? And mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of different philosophies about how much that should be done, right? Um, in terms of game creation. So it sounds like, you know, you're like, okay, right. If you don't, if this, this, this mod or tool you find to be detractive, we don't, we don't let it go live, but you are also right. outsourcing an abundance of ideas to the community to create because maybe Riot doesn't have the manpower, the resources, the um, even the bureaucratic pull to basically like maybe have focus on that specific kind of feature. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, I think that's also the fight for for why Web3. And so what are you guys thinking in terms of the relationship between maybe blockchain technology and your UGC creator economy? Do you think it's detractive or inimical or, you know, What's what's the perspective there, at least from Overwolf? Um, so actually, you know, we, we don't 100% know, and we're still <laughs> exploring that and trying to learn. And we try to be really kind of on top of things and curious and ask questions and see how we could be providing a service to both the game developers that we're working with, but also the creators that we're working with, with Web3 technology. If, if we would be ignoring it completely, we would not be doing our job because essentially... Mm-hmm. Um, Web3, in, in my opinion, falls under tools and services. And um, if our job is building tools and services and in, in, enabling these tools and services for creators and game developers, then this is totally something that we need to do. But then decentralization at its core is at a conflict with IP ownership. Um, so a lot of IP owners like to control their IP. <laughs> Um, and yep. they actually don't appreciate um, other folks you know, controlling their IP or any sort of decentralized structure. And so there definitely is a cohort in the world um, that is not going to find that uh, very appealing. However, like for some use cases, for example, trading or others, uh, this could actually be applicable for them in a way that will allow them to retain control over their IP, but decentralize some of the mechanics or economies of their community. Mm But also this is where it gets complicated because 
um, some of these IP owners have been really successful being building ecosystems uh, with like Web2 tech. Um, right. And they felt, you know, pretty great about it. And they were like in control and, you know, they have their communities and, um, you know, life is good. So why take that risk, which kind of brings us to the point that we talked about earlier about John working in AAA studio. And now, you know, there's a new piece of technology or like a new idea on a game mechanic, like Battle Royale, you know, no one's going to take that. I mean, I would never say no one, but before all that validation that came from H1Z1 and PUBG and Fortnite, like it would have been right. harder to pitch that internally, I think in a big city like Activision. So I don't know. Um, so what, what we do is we, we try to really learn and try to understand and, and, um, and obviously with the recent news, um, there's going to be, I think a lot of pushback if, uh, you know, um, call it ballpark 12 months ago. Um, uh, there was like a huge hype. Uh, now it's like, what's going on here and where's the world going and all that. Um, I, I don't think we were too impacted by the huge hype or, um, uh, by what's happening right now. I think mm -hmm. we just want to keep our eyes and ears open and see how we can do our job helping creators and game developers. Does that make sense? I know that was maybe a fuzzy answer, but I uh, like, honestly, we, we don't have um, we haven't started writing code. We don't have integrations with uh, Web3 technologies. We did have a bunch of conversation. We had a bunch of ideas, but we haven't kind of yet found that thing that we want to do tomorrow. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. I think you are, you like Roblox and Minecraft, you're for creators by creators, but in the Web2 world, and you're kind of waiting in the wings to see what happens with Web3 to see whether or not it has sort of like some sort of proven validity or or necessary traction. And mm -hmm. so I guess what what would have to happen, I guess? Um, is there a sort of, so have you thought about that? And what, what signal that the Web3 games or the Web3 market have to give you guys for you guys to say like, okay, like absolutely, like decentralized blockchain tech is necessary for the creator economy? So, so one example could be that we would fail miserably in attribution rights. Um, I mean, right mm. now, when when we first heard of, kind of started exploring like true problems that we can solve um for creators there's attribution right i mean you can take a piece of ugc and maybe uh copy it and if you copy it you might change like a couple things and resubmit it and you're basically stealing someone else's creation it's kind of annoying um but we kind of function as the judge in this sense and it's not like a decentralized decision mechanism you know mm -hmm. so we're that trusted party that's supposed to decide so like if we do a really poor job uh, on that front, then it would be for us a good stimulus to try and find a different solution that is bulletproof um, and that would prevent other people, sorry, people from stealing other people's work. Um, so this is one example. Another example could be um, a game that is like that, that solves uh, problems that exist in the industry right now. So for example, right. people do <laughs> scam trading all the time. Um, you know, my son plays, um, and in-game trading and games that don't have systems for trading uh, is full of scams and, you know, bad people think about bad things. So theoretically, uh, Web3 could solve that. Um, so this would be like a good problem to solve. But I really think it comes down to, to either solving uh, huge problems or just creating a, a really good game that's super fun to play. 
uh, with a strong business model that's not like a Fonzie scheme that is a business model. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, then, then I think, you know, it starts to be like super interesting, but maybe I'm wrong. Like, I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, you know, I'm not, not a big expert. When I started computer science, actually crypto was one of the most interesting courses I've done. It was like really mind blowing to understand kind of um, how encryption is built, um, how things actually work and why they work the way they work. Um, but other than that, I don't have a ton of good ideas and, you know, again, what we can do tomorrow. Got it. Got it. It's, it, it is really interesting because there are just so many, I guess, um, I think, I think the IP issue is the biggest stumbling block, right? Um, when we think about creation of the metaverse, and I know that this is Epic stance, for example, um, you know, you want to see brand IP from the real world, so that something that you can identify with when you go in there, right? Like mm-hmm. the cold and you know more corporate metaverse of Meta or Horizon might not be working as well as the colorful Marvel plus Star Wars plus NFL plus Lego everything that um, you know Epic is building. And if you can't control the IP, because that's just the way that you know, it works, right? You build an amazing brand and you want to be able to benefit from that ownership over, you know, forever um, mm-hmm. other, under copyright or trademark or what, whatever it is. Um, then you, then Web3 doesn't make as much sense. And so I think that's something that um, at least a lot of studios are struggling with, right? Is like, well, people ask the question, well, it's like, if I own these assets, well, then why can't I take my board ape and go make a movie out of it? Right, and well, it's because um, even even in the even in the Web three yeah. space, like Yuga Labs owns Board Apes. Um, you own the commercial rights, but you don't own the underlying IP. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that makes it very, um, you know, you have to have permission essentially. And you guys are acting as that centralized permission maker. Um, and maybe blockchain actually takes away from your ability to moderate quality content, um, which I think has always been maybe something that AAA studios are afraid of, which is, I guess, you know, strongly supports your value proposition, essentially, right? Yeah, um, I, I guess at the end of the day, it provides them more control, um, maybe mm-hmm. less control to the community, but as long as you're, you know, building the right company with the right culture, then the community is supposed to feel comfortable because you actually do maybe the exact same thing that um, the audience would do um, mm-hmm. over a decentralized decision-making mechanism. Got it. Got it. Um, and so in our, in our, in our last couple of minutes, right. I want to ask you guys maybe some questions about, um, you know, building over Wolf and, mm-hmm. and, and yourself, right. You, I mean, you and other leaders of, of UGC, um, focus gaming companies, or rather, I guess I would get tooling and services for yeah. game creators is how yeah. I guess now that I should be saying it. Because <laughs> remember, if it's not that, then it's not you guys. Um, you know, but again, very much like a frontier leader, you know, um, and pushing forward the capabilities and redefining the gaming industry and what it means to be a developer. Um, how have you found success um, in convincing investors um, that this is the right direction to move in, right? Um, I think you guys have been very successful so far in, in raising. Um, and so can you maybe just you know share a little bit about your journey? A lot of the people that listen to this podcast are builders themselves, right? Who are trying to push forward the frontiers of gaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we were um, pretty horrible at fundraising when we started. Um, you know, we really struggled. We ran out of money probably three times and had to figure out creative ways to continue to survive. Um, 
but we were fortunate to um, weather the storm and the nuclear winter of, I don't know, like 2013 to 16, 17, where it was really hard to get investments into games before it became kind of a trend. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the first key thing is if you have a strong conviction where you're building is just weather the storm. And if you have the ability to continue to do that, um, you know, and you still believe in what you do, then, then do it. I mean, the worst kind of thing is uh, banging heads against walls and, <laughs> um, it, you know, I, and I think that endurance is a great um asset but not in every price like you need to be conscious um in what you fight for and why you fight for it and make sure kind of the stars are aligned from that perspective but i think this is the first uh this is the first thing and then the second thing is just uh traction i think when we decided to do our c round um the combination of uh favorable market uh behaviors and trends so this is like end of 2019, uh, plus the traction that we had back then helped us uh, quite quickly close around, get a term sheet and all those things. And I think people appreciated the fact that we were more of a bootstrap mentality startup versus uh, we raised $100 million with our seed round um, and built this <laughs> gigantic vision. We, we were kind of like more, we were slower in that sense, um, which provided a lot of, um, reference to the future investor on our track record and who we are as people and um why we do what we do and all those things and then um and then yeah like that that was that went quite fast and um and then the second fundraising was quite fast as well does that make sense like i think uh i guess totally makes sense yeah like what what i want to say is like for us it was really hard raising money in the beginning i was pitching investors that look at me and like didn't understand what i'm talking about (laughs) <laughs> right, and, right. Know, and I've had, you know, uh, a ton of meetings like that, so. Sure, yeah. I mean, having also done a stint in gaming VC myself, right, I think it is very impressive that um, when you see a set of entrepreneurs and founders who bootstrap their company for a long time, right, um, and kind of weathered that storm, right, because it shows that you have these sort of battle scars and, um, I guess, stalwart conviction that, um what you're building is the right idea. And I guess that was exactly my question. You know, I think modding to me is so intuitive, right? Because I've been a gamer my whole life. But I would suspect that, you know, if you're trying to explain this to what you guys do to maybe somebody else who's not even familiar with games, right? It might be really challenging. Um, and so that's sort of, you know, what I was, you know, how how you guys kind of navigated um, maybe like a uh, an asymmetric and asymmetric information sets between or understanding mm-hmm. between investors and yourselves. So, so I think actually the investors that, um, you know, came in the last couple of years, um, they're gaming guys and, and they understand, they, they understood what we we're talking about. And they also kind of felt from a gazillion reasons that what we're pitching needs to happen. And they thought that mm-hmm. we're quite well positioned to um, be providing the best service for creators from the, a bunch of other companies out there. And so that, that's why they decided to invest. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so in terms of needs to happen, I mean, think maybe a final question would be, you know, you've been the CEO of Overworld for 12 years and you've been supporting the modding community since like 2010 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Can you 
talk about what you think the future looks like for UGC and like what does need to happen in order to make it um, the best that it can be? You know, I, I don't 100% know what needs to happen, but I can talk about what we're looking to do. And sure. what we're looking to do is to continuously build the best tools and services for creators and for game developers so that game developers feel comfortable and it becomes this like standard that when you launch the game, just like you have VoIP or just like you potentially want to build an online game, you have that capability. You come to us and we help you build a creator community around your game on day one. Um, and you do that not only because of technical tools, but also because of the services, because we're able to provide a safe environment for you and because we're able to allow you to focus on building the game without solving the chicken and egg problem that we talked about earlier. So this mm -hmm. is what we intend to do. And we, we don't intend to like, I, there's no expiration that date um, to this vision and to this kind of where we're taking the company. So this is what it is about. Got it. Got it. And then is there, to top it off, is there a mod that you really enjoy or a very prolific creator on Overwolf that you think uh, deserves a shout out? Um, you know, there's, uh, I won't say the name, but there's someone uh, that we wanted to work with. There, there's a group that we wanted to work with for a couple of years, and uh, we have a big launch um, in the next couple of days uh, together. And uh, if you're listening to this, you know who you are. I uh, just want to say thank you for your trust. <laughs> All right. That was very, that was very, uh, very clandestine. Um, but that's awesome. Uh, I think that there's probably, you know, so many modding communities out there that um, are interested in maybe partnering with you guys. So, you know, wanted to kind of understand, you know, what does it take, I guess, to be a, uh, a just modern, email me or, uh, at overworld.com. Like, um, and, you know, I'll connect with the right folks in the company and, or reach out to us whenever. Like, it's the easiest thing ever. We're not hardened in that sense. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much Uri, for your time. And uh, yeah, this is, this is great. And again, you can reach out to him um, yeah, via the information that he just sent. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. And then look forward to the, uh, the Sims partnerships that will be launching in a week. You said, yeah, I mean, so, so the website is up and running as of today um, mm -hmm. and the client is planned to December 6th and then it's just going to be ongoing live service like iterations. So awesome. All right. Well, this was, um, again, Uri from Overwolf, and this is, uh, I'll see you next week for another episode of The Crypto Corner. Thanks so much. <laughs>